Please be seated. Let me encourage you now to take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 6, and today we're looking at verses 9 through 20. The writer, after giving uh, a very severe warning to the flock, now turns to the theme of encouragement. And encouragement is incredibly important, something all of us need. Encouraging words can make a great deal of difference. And so verses 9 through 20, the author goes to great lengths to provide an encouraging word for those part of this little urban church and uh, let's then listen and not be dull of hearing to the reading of God's word though we speak in this way yet in your case beloved we feel sure a better thing things that belong to salvation for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final, for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word, let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us light, that you would illumine the eyes of our heart, that you would give us a, a pliable, teachable, tender, responsive heart. That we would not be dull of hearing. We would not be preoccupied with all of the thoughts that challenge us daily. We do pray that this moment would be set aside to hear from you, recognizing that you, through your word and by your spirit, are speaking to us. And we pray that you may get glory to yourself through what is said and done here. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Encouragement is extremely important. It's actually one of friendship's greatest treasures. Most of us can remember significant turning points that came because someone said an encouraging word in a crucial time. Perhaps it was a coach. I remember I had a coach, football coach in high school, and I've talked about him before. He's a little short guy. I don't know what it was about that man, and it probably was more about me than that man, but I would have run through a brick wall for that man. I wanted his approval more than I wanted my next breath. And so the first game of the season, my senior year, I got moved to fullback because we had a guy that was faster and could run faster than me, and he was tailback. And we were running off tackle. If you don't know what that is, that's where the quarterback turns around, hands the ball, and we all run forward, and my job was to block. And on the first play of the season, I ran through that line, and I knocked down the middle linebacker. I knocked down the safety, and finally dove at the feet of the cornerback and knocked him down, and our running back ran 74 yards untouched into the end zone for a touchdown. So Sunday afternoon, after church, we watched film of the game, and film doesn't lie. And so I'm pumped up. This is one day I want to go and sit in the locker room and watch the film because I know I did something remarkable here. So I go, and I'm sitting on the front row. And if you ever made a mistake, he would make you stand up in front of the rest of the team and explain why you made a mistake. But I knew today it was going to be different. So here's what he did. He got up. He ran the play. It happened. I saw what I did, and I was waiting for him to say something. Then he ran it back, and he ran it again. Then he ran it back, and he ran it again. He said, Posey, stand up. So I stood up, and I said, this is my day. He's going to say it. He's going to say, you did it amazing. You know what he said to me? How come you don't do that on every play? Sit down. <laughs> I don't know why I wanted that man's approval. And I actually got it after I left school. He put together a, 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 a tape of all the blocks I had made at fullback to show the other team members. My younger brother told me this. I never saw the tape, but he did it, and uh, so I knew that he liked what I did. But anyway, they're teachers. Sometimes a teacher will say something. I had a teacher my sophomore year in high school named Mrs. Cochran. And Mrs. Cochran was a passionate, vibrant English teacher, probably the only person in the world at that time that could ever get me to love English. And I was, I was loving it, and so we had to stand up and give a presentation. She said, Mr. Posey, she said, you're either going to be one of three things when you grow up. You're going to be a preacher, you're going to be a politician, or you're going to be a lawyer. And I said to her, there's one I will never be, preacher, right? <laughs> So encouragement is something important. Encouragement helps us. It lifts us up. Sometimes a parent who understands that we're just about to give up comes up with the words you need to hear. And encouragement comes in many, many forms. Sometimes an example shows us uh, how to persevere and lead to hope of blessing. Uh, sometimes seeing someone who's gone before us accomplish something uh, encourages us to follow in the same footsteps and sometimes it's just assurance but in this text the author to the Hebrews goes to great lengths today 
to stir us up and help us persevere and continue on with our hope. Now, we know that in context, he has issued a severe warning about falling away from or deserting our original profession of faith in Christ. But immediately beginning in verses 9 through 12, he starts to encourage this larger congregation. It is very clear his desire is not to undermine the assurance of true believers, but in fact, to warn those who are tempted to turn their backs on Jesus. And so as we look at verses 9 to 12, one of the things that he immediately does is he says to the larger congregation, I expect better things from you. I truly expect better things from you. I don't expect you to turn your back on Jesus. I don't expect you to apostatize from your profession of faith. I see evidence of God's grace at work in your life. One of them that he mentions is the way they love one another and the way they care for one another as a congregation. He says that that is an indication that God the Holy Spirit is at work with real grace in their lives. Just like the way you care for one another, the way you love one another. And he is full of joy at witnessing and seeing that. Look with me at verses 9 through 12. Let's just sort of walk through this together. He says... Though we speak in this way, that is verses 1 through 8, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And so he's saying here is that God takes note of something. He takes note of something. He sees fruit in your life. Now, we're never saved by our works, but we're saved by faith, and the faith that saves us is always accompanied by good works. How do we know we have saving faith? How do we know we're really connected to Jesus? How do we know that we really have life in Christ? And the way we know is fruit. And he talks about that fruit. He actually talked about it in verses 7 and our, yeah, seven and eight previously, where he mentioned rain falling on the earth and some bringing forth a good crop and others bringing forth only thorns and thistles that's cursed. And so God sees, he takes note of. You know, most of the time I'm, when I'm thinking about what God's looking at, and uh, I'm thinking, well, he sees my sin. He sees my sin, he knows my sin. But there's something else he sees. He's something else he takes notice of. Something else that registers with him. And what he sees is our good works. But in particular here, he doesn't so much talk about our devotion to himself, nor our theological acumen, both of which are very important. But he talks about serving one another, loving one another in the church. And I know this as your pastor. When I see people who are broken, people who are needy, people who are struggling, and I see you reach out, I see you empty yourself to help them. I see you intervene. I see you get involved with people around you. That thrills my soul. That to me speaks more than anything else, that you're beginning to get it. You're beginning to see that Christianity is highly relational. It has both a vertical and a horizontal aspect. The vertical aspect is Christianity, if you truly have the real thing, you desire on Sunday mornings to come and worship the Lord. Amen. There's nothing that's more important 
to you than that. You have a hunger for that. You have a passion for that. You have a desire to pray. You have a desire to read his word. But there's something else that happens if you're really connected to Christ by faith. You care about people. You want to do ministry to people. You know, as a pastor, I've looked at people and sometimes they're not very articulate or able to state theologically in a, um, you know, clear way exactly their experience of salvation or what faith is or who Jesus is or any of that. And uh, it concerns me when I see that, but, but when I see people get involved in other people's lives, when I see ministry going on, to me that's the proof. That's the reality. Now those other things are important. I'm not minimizing them. But the writer here says God takes note of that. He smiles. He's not like my football coach. He smiles when you do that. He takes note of that. And it causes the heart of God joy with his people. And he longs for us to have full assurance of hope until the end. So that we won't be sluggish, um, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of the gospel. We've all been hardwired for hope, every one of us. We all project our lives out into the future to imagine things as we would like them to be. We all carry around with us personal hopes and dreams, every single one of us. We all surrender our hearts to some kind of expectation. We all silently wish sometimes that things could be different than they are. We all hope in something and we all hope for something. So much of how we look at life and how our lives are lived is connected to the things that we place the fundamental hopes of our lives upon. But hope always has three elements. Hope involves an assessment, it involves an expectation, and it involves an object. First, hope looks around and assesses that something or someone could be better than it is. It assesses that that something or someone is somehow broken. If things were as perfect as they could be, none of us would ever need to hope. Second, hope always has an object. It's the thing that you bank your hope on. It's the foundation of it. You ask the object of your hope to fix what is broken or to deliver what is desired or needed. And third, hope has an expectation. This is what you ask the object of your hope to give you. What you hope, the object of your hope, will deliver to you. Now, there are really only two places to look for foundational life hope. That is, basic meaning, purpose, motivation to continue, a sense of well-being, and the knowledge that you've hooked yourself to what life is really all about. You can search for hope horizontally in the situations, experiences, physical possessions, locations, and relationships of everyday life. There are two problems with looking horizontally. First of all, these things suffer from the same degree of brokenness that you do. They are part of the problem. If you, if you ever think getting married is going to solve all your problems and fix what is wrong with you, you're foolish. It will not. No person can be your Messiah. You can only have one Messiah. So they're part of the problem because they all suffer from some degree of brokenness. They're part of the problem. And because they are, they are unable to deliver what your heart is really seeking. Also, these things were never made to be the source of our hope. 
but to, the, uh, but to be fingers that point to where hope can be found. Paul says in Romans 5.5, 5, he tells us that hope in God will never put us to shame. It will never embarrass us by failing to deliver. In those words, Paul tells us where hope can be found. It can only be anchored vertically. We'll talk about that more in a moment. It can only be anchored vertically. Only when our triune God is our hope can our hope be sure and secure. Only He is able to give us the life that our heart seeks. Only He can give us the rest that our hearts need. It is only when grace has hooked us to Him that we're connected to what life is really all about. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us that if our hope disappoints us, it's because we have the wrong hope, the wrong object. And so the writer of Hebrews is careful to direct our attention to the object of our hope. And then in point two, he begins to talk about something rather amazing in this passage. He uses Abraham as an example. Now Abraham is often called the father of the faith. And he's held up. And the covenant with Abraham is one in which we participate in, in which we receive blessing because we're part, we are his seed because we're in Christ, according to Galatians. But one thing I like about Abraham is he's very human. Abraham didn't get it right all the time. Abraham is not some X-Man hero. He's not some cosmic personality. He was an idol worshiper. An Ur of the Chaldees, wherever in the world that is. His father was an idol worshiper. And God came to him and called him to himself. Called him into a relationship with him. And the amazing thing is, Abraham listened and he followed. But Abraham failed a lot. Abraham was not sterling in every relationship. For example, God promised him a seed, and since God had not yet delivered the seed, he turned to his servant, Eleazar, and said, well, you'll be my substitute seed. You'll be my seed by proxy. And God, as he expands the covenant with Abraham, says, oh no, that won't do. The seed must come from you. Well, then he decides to take Hagar, a maidservant, and have relations with her and produce a seed with her, namely Ishmael. And God rejects that. Also, Abraham had problems with the truth. He wasn't always someone who told the truth. He, he lied more than once. So he was like us. He was weak. And yet the writer of the Hebrews holds him up as someone we should imitate because sin forgiven, it was remarkable what this man did. And God wants us to have assurance. He wants us to know these things. And so he picks Abraham, and he tells us about swearing an oath. If you look at uh, verses 13 through 15, in this section, the author of Hebrews takes us way back to Genesis 22. Now, Genesis chapter 12 is where God makes his promise to Abraham and calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Genesis 15 is where he makes his covenant with Abraham, Genesis 17 is where he gives circumcision as a sign of the covenant. Genesis 22 is where God calls Abraham to take Isaac, the promised seed, and to take him up to the mountain and to offer his only, his beloved son, to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. 
And these verses have that passage as their backdrop because he's going to quote from Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17, right in the middle of this passage in verse 14. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, what he's doing is reminding you of the way that God assured Abraham. And he's saying, look at what God did in order to assure Abraham. He took an oath. He swore an oath to Abraham. Now think about that, my friends. Abraham has been waiting decades to have a son of his own. Ishmael was not that son. Ishmael was not born to Abraham and Sarah. And God makes it clear in Genesis 17 that the promised seed that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 is going to come from Sarah's body even though she's over 90 years old. Now, I don't know how old exactly Isaac was when they went up the mountain. Some would say 8, 12, 13, no one knows for sure. He's a young boy. And God says, now, Abraham, now that you've been waiting decades to finally have a boy who's going to be your heir, I want you to take him to the mountain in the land of Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now, can you imagine what must have gone on in Abraham? Clearly, he, he must have struggled with this. But he obeys. He does what the Lord tells him to. He gets to the top of the mountain. He lifts the knife to plunge it into his son, into his body. And the angel of the Lord calls out and says, Abraham, don't touch that boy. And a ram caught in the thicket substituted for Isaac, and Isaac is spared. And in the very wake of that substitution, of that provision of God, the angel of the Lord says again the words of God, Abraham, I swear, I will multiply you and bless you. I promise, I take an oath, I swear my oath to you that I will fulfill the promises that I've made to you. And the author of Hebrews wants us to remember and realize that the way God assured Abraham was in the context of that miraculous deliverance swearing an oath to him. Now, what a, what a glorious story. It's stunning, isn't it? Absolutely stunning. Because human beings swear oaths because we're untrustworthy. That's why we hate, have to take oaths because we lie. And God doesn't lie. And yet, because Abraham's faith is weak, God is willing to stand up on the witness stand and take an oath. God stoops to swear an oath to Abraham in order that he can be assured of the promises he has made. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is this, Christian, you understand it's not just to Abraham that God has sworn an oath. It is also to you, to you. Not just Abraham, but also to you. And what the author of Hebrews is saying this, Christian, you understand that it's not just to Abraham that God has sworn an oath, it is to you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, you are, the Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 2, you are, as Luke says in Luke 22, in Acts chapter 1, you are the heir of God's promise to Abraham. So that oath that God swore to Abraham, guess what, believer? He swore it to you. 
You were in his loins, so to speak. God stooped to take an oath because he was so concerned that you would be, a be able to believe his promise, that you would be assured of his love and his purposes, that you would have a hope that could not be taken away from you in midst of all the hard things that you are going to face in life. There are hard things we face in life. Certain circumstances in our life cause us to struggle with assurance. You know, we can find ourselves in situations where we say, man, I, I, I didn't see that coming. Lord, I didn't know he was going to have to deal with this or I was going to have to deal with this. Maybe the Lord doesn't love me because this happened to me. Or sometimes, Lord, I didn't know. I didn't know what was, it was going to be like to be a Christian. I didn't know the Christian life was going to be this way. I didn't know I was going to struggle with chronic illness. I didn't know I was going to bury a daughter and her children. I didn't know I was going to deal with marital infidelity. I didn't know I was going to have to rear children on my own. I didn't know I was going to have to struggle with depression year after year after year and never get relief. I didn't know my vocation was going to be a problem for me much of my life. I didn't know my children would betray me. I didn't know it was going to be so hard for me to take care of my parents. It's been 20 years now that I've been caring for my mom and she's hard to care for. And sometimes weariness of these experiences wears down. And that is why God stooped and condescended to make these oaths and promises and to swear for us. Because there are times that the circumstances in our life seem almost to contradict the very thing that we're saying this morning. But God has sworn an oath. That's how much he wants us to have assurance. He's willing to take an oath. But also note that God keeps his promises. Look at verse 16 to 18. Here the author is going to tell us what the twofold ground of our hope is. It is not you. It is not your circumstances. It's in something else. Look at what he says. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Humans swear oaths because humans lie. The reason we put our hands on a Bible and hold up our hand in a courtroom and say, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God is we are acknowledging a higher accountability to tell the truth because we know our inclinations. And when we think our hide is on the line, why, well, you know, uh, that, and what we are tempted to do often is to lie, and so we swear by a higher accountability. So help me God. Have you ever wondered why there are seals and official symbols in courtrooms? The seal of the city, the seal of the county, seal of the state, seal of the federal government. Why? Because it indicates a higher accountability. This isn't just something that people have a, 
or that people are together and having a conversation. This is you representatively before the judge. And what does he represent? He represents the city, the county, the state, the nation. And the whole thing is designed to create a solemn environment in which you realize your obligation to tell the truth. Well, I have good news for you. God has no problem with lying. So why is he taking an oath? Not because his word is weak, but because our faith is weak. God knows that we struggle with believing the promises, and so he says, Child, I know it's hard for you sometimes to believe my word, so here's what I'm going to do. In addition to my promise, I'm going to swear an oath to you that the two inviolable things that he's talking about in this passage, in other words, God, notice what God is doing. He is relocating our hope. He is reloading, relocating our hope from our circumstances, from something inside of us, and he's relocating it to what? To his promise and his oath. That's what he's doing. He's relocating our hope in this passage, and that's hugely important. You know, when we go through crisis moments in our lives, we often call out to God, and, and we do put our trust in God, and then things get better, and what happens? We get comfortable again. And we start to put our hope in comfortable circumstances in which we now find ourselves. And when trouble comes again, that hope disappears. And here's what God is doing. He is lifting up that hope out of the shifting sands of circumstances. And he's plopping it right down in the middle of something that will never change. And that is the only thing that will not change. And that is him and his word and his promise. That's why you need a superior hope. That's why your expectation, why your assessment, your object, and your expectation are so important. What are you hanging on to? What are you holding fast to? And look at what he did in Genesis. First, he gave Abraham a promise. Then he gave Abraham a covenant, Genesis 15. Then he gave Abraham a covenant sign, Genesis 17. Then he swore an oath to Abraham in Genesis 22. Over and over, what is God saying? Abraham, sure, you're 100 and Sarah's 90, but you're still going to have children. Don't put a lot of hope in your circumstances. Put your hope in my promise. Put your hope in my covenant. He's relocating the hope of Abraham, and that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying to us. If you want to have assurance of your hope, your hope has got to be in the Lord and in his word and in his promises. The true ground of assurance is in God, in his promise, in his covenant, in his oath. And we need to ask ourselves this morning, is that where my hope really is? Crises come in the Christian life where people profess to be Christians, but their hope is somewhere else other than the Lord. When their real hope is not in the Lord, that's when crises come in the Christian life. And the author of Hebrews is simply saying, you want to have assurance, and God wants you to have assurance. Believer, your hope has got to be in the Lord, in his promises, and in his oath. And then you see in verses 19 and 20 the way he applies this particular truth. He tells you that Christian hope stabilizes our souls. 
We have the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, if you understand that in order for you to have assurance, God has condescended to swear an oath to you. And if you understand that your hope is not in you, not in your circumstances, but in him and him only, and in his promises, and in the oath that he swore, then you have a hope that you can hold on to that will last. Now, I love this passage because the writer's a good preacher, and good preachers mix metaphors all the time. You get a bad grade in English for doing that, I found out. But not in Scripture, <laughs> which I tend to like more. All right. It mixes metaphors. We have the metaphor of an anchor and the holy of holies. What is that? Well, what's behind the curtain that he talks about here? It's called the holy of holies. What is that? That's the place that represents the presence of God with his people. That's where the Shekinah glory resided, the glory of God among his people. Uh, in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, later on in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And so that represented God near, God present. And he says, when you dropped anchor, where did it end up? You know, if you're dropping an anchor, you're thinking, okay, at least it's in the lake. It's not in the gulf. It's not in an ocean somewhere. That's normally where you drop anchor. But you drop anchor and it ends up being in the Holy of Holies. And not just in earthly Holy of Holies, but in the heavenly Holy of Holies that Jesus has already passed to. In other words, he is saying, if you put your trust in God and your faith in his promises, let me tell you where your anchor that gives you a steadfast stability lands. It lands right in the presence of God of God. And Jesus has gone there before us, and sooner or later he's going to pull you on in with him because your hope is anchored in the very presence of God. And so it will hold no matter what. Your soul, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, is tethered to, tied to an anchor, and that anchor is your hope, and that hope is a person who is standing at the right hand of God, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who sat down after he made satisfaction for our sins. That is where our hope is resting. That is the foundation of our hope. And that's as strong a guarantee as can be given, that he is the forerunner. He's the one that's gone on before us. And he's conquered everything. And he's there, and you're tied to him. You're united to him by faith. And it lands, Jesus has gone there before us, and sooner or later he's going to pull on us with him because our hope is anchored in the very presence of God, and it will hold no matter what. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying your hope is based on the fact that God has made a promise to you. The same promise, if you are a believer, the same promise that he made to Abraham. And he's given his son as a pledge for the fulfillment of that promise so, so that you can be certain your anchor will hold. If I had been a little sharper, I would have had us sing in closing today, my hope is built on nothing less. Think about that hymn for a moment. Listen. His oath, 
his covenant, his blood, support me in the overwhelming flood. Why? Because I have an anchor. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. That song, you see, is built around this passage. Over and over, the lines and thoughts of ideas of Hebrews 6 comes up in the, this great hymn. My hope is built on nothing less. And the author is simply saying this, Christian, are you temperamentally inclined to struggle with assurance of your hope? I have been around believers who struggle with assurance and I'm sitting there listening to them, and if I had a little bubble about, uh, above my head about what I'm thinking when they're talking to me, it would say inside, they're a better Christian than I am. Why are they struggling? I mean, they're so much more, so much more mature and so much more um, connected. They're what I hope to be someday, and they're struggling with assurance. Sometimes it's a temperament thing. Sometimes it's, it's just a, a, a thorn in the flesh kind of thing for us struggle with hope and the condition of your life that makes it really hard for us to believe. In either case, if we trust his oath, his covenant, his blood, we will find that they will support us in the overwhelming flood, and we will find that they are a foundation that cannot be moved. God wants us to be assured. It's one of the things that gives us energy for the fight. Because we're in a fight. We're in a fight to the death. And many of us will die in that fight to the death. But Jesus lives. And so shall we. I just love that anchor imagery. I cannot get that out of my head. I've been so excited about it. I, I have a pair of shorts that has anchors all over it. And people, I've worn it a couple of times. And people have made some snide remarks about it. And I saw a shirt the other day that matched those shorts that had anchors all over it. It's all I could do not to buy it on the spot. Because I want to tell them, you know what that anchor represents? That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus in the Holy of Holies. And I'm tied to him. And I don't care what happens in this world. I have a sure foundation. And when I die, I will be with him eternally. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we think about what you said to us today that we would learn to look for assurance not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, not in how well we're doing spiritually, not in how many good works we've done this week, but rather in Christ and Christ alone. And we do pray that you would seal to our hearts this guarantee that you have made, that you are an anchor for our souls. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who have an anchor for our souls in Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.